Uh, thank you, Philip, for praying for the church and for people for me this morning. We begin a new series this morning on the Ten Commandments, which for some people will sound just like old-fashioned and fuddy-duddy and all that stuff. I hope over these next uh, 10, 11 Sundays to convince you that it's not at all. It's a very relevant part of God's Word to us. And uh, I'll sometimes call it the Decalogue. And you may not know that word, the Decalogue. Um, in Greek, simply means the ten words. So what God gives us is ten words about how to live in the times in which we live today. And this morning will set the stage for us. It's a little bit of philosophy, a little bit of sociology. And so that we understand the times in which we live. And because some people stood when they heard the word of God, I'm going to read the Ten Commandments this morning. It's the beginning of our series. Um, and I'd like to invite you to stand as we hear God's word. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then begins the ten words to us. You shall, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in any form of anything in heaven, above, or the earth beneath, or the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me and showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord your God will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses my name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, on it you shall not do any work. Neither you, your son, your daughter, manservant, maidservant, your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heavens and earth, and the sea, and all that's in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed this Sabbath day, made it holy. Honor your father and mother, so that you may live long in the land and the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. In Hebrew, it's just simply two words. No killing. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Those are the ten words of the Lord our God. So, Father, may we hear your word over these weeks, and may it impact our minds and hearts and lives and change how we live. In Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Let me paint two pictures for you this morning to set the stage. And uh, you might see yourself in them if you're a parent. Imagine you have a young child who's recently started school in your neighborhood. And so for a number of days and weeks, you've walked them to school every day, teaching them how to cross the road and wait for the walk sign and reminding them again and again that you don't talk to strangers. And then one day, this little boy, little girl announces, uh, Mommy, Daddy, um, I'm big enough now to go by myself. And you're a little scared of that, but you know that this day was going to come. And so they head off down the road, and you hope and you pray that they remember everything you've told them. Cross the, at the lights, watch for the cars, wait for the walk signal, and don't talk to strangers. 
Or maybe you've experienced this. You have an 18, 20 year old son or daughter and finished high school. They worked hard for a year, saved up some money. And now they want to go off to Europe or university or South America or wherever it is. And so you drive them to the airport here in Vancouver, YBR, and you, um, you hug them and you kiss them goodbye. And you're on your way home and sitting with your wife or husband at uh, supper that night. And you begin to pray for them as you pray for them every day. And you remember that they would remember everything you've tried to teach them for the last 18, 19 years in their life. About their personal safety. About personal morality. To watch out for strangers. Because now they're no longer under your eye. They, they, they're heading out on their own. And as you see the plane sort of rise up and into the sky, your prayer every day will be that they will remember everything you've tried to teach them. We've done both of those things. So you see, for little kids heading out to school on their own, young adults leaving for Europe, South America, wherever it may be, the world is full of new experiences, confusing voices and new pressures, and strangers for whom you've got to be on your guard. Now that was the scene 3,500 years ago. The nation which was become known as Israel, they had been slaves in Egypt. And then in a series of powerful, miraculous events, God set them free. On a mountaintop called Sinai, God forged them into his nation. He said to them, you see what I've done to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now if you will obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all of the nations of the earth, you will be my treasured possession. You will be to me, he says, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Ahead of them is the promise of a new land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Water, imagine, water from wells that you did not have to dig. Fruit from trees that you've not had to plant. And if you know the story, it's a promise that's going to be delayed for 40 years as they go wandering around the wilderness, but that's for another time. In this new land, whenever they get there, in addition to all the benefits, they will also hear the voices of strange gods seeking to seduce them away from this one true God we are singing about this morning, this awesome God. They will feel the pressure in this land to be shaped and conformed by its strange customs. They will feel the pressure for their sons and their daughters to intermarry. And the question that they face is, how will they maintain their unique identity as the people of God? How will they live out the distinctive characteristics of being God's holy nation? You see, they're going to be foreigners in this land. How will they maintain their uniqueness? How will they stay safe? And so God has a kind of what I'll call a facts of life talk to them. And that facts of life talk to them is actually giving them the Ten Commandments. God gives these commandments to a people that he's just redeemed. The Decalogue, the Ten Words, is not a list of rules to make life awkward or old-fashioned. At its heart, it's a statement about who God is and what God is like. And so the the spiritual uniqueness of Israel as a nation, her separateness regarding the surrounding nations, will be broadcast and seen loud and clear. You see, Israel is going to go from one polytheistic, that means a many-gods culture, which is Egypt, and they're going to enter another polytheistic culture, which is Canaan. 
And so they will need to learn what a redeemed people look like. And they receive these rules for holy living so that they can really be the people of God in an unholy land. Now, we might agree that societies might be better off if they followed the moral direction of the Ten Commandments. But we need to understand this morning that these commandments were not given to make us good citizens and generally nice people who don't shop on Sundays. Don't lie, don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Rather, in the life of the people of God, they bring a divine cosmos and a social order together. They're to demonstrate what God's people look like in the midst of social chaos. See, the Ten Commandments connect God's will to social order for His people. They're a demonstration of what His saving grace really looks like when we live it out. First Peter echoes this. He's actually I'm quoting back from Exodus. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, so that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And then Peter says eventually, live good lives among the pagans. You get the picture? We now are the aliens in the foreign land. How will we live? How did we get here? Let me take you back a very brief history lesson um, this morning. For many centuries, um, often traced to the conversion of an emperor called Constantine in the 3rd century, Christianity had a very favored, special status in the history of the world. This is a period which is called Christendom. You need to know that word. Okay? Sure, there were ups and downs, there were dark periods in the historical stage. Christians did not do everything right. But Christianity in this age of Christendom was a dominant force. It was the greatest force that shaped Western civilization. It launched social change and geographic exploration. It was a catalyst for hospitals and education. It made a difference in the world. Uh, many of us um, who are old like me can go back through the 20 years, 20th century, and you remember there was prayer and education in schools. Did you get that? I went to an old boys' school. 1,400 boys. And we began every morning with morning prayers in the assembly hall. Um, there was a general aspect, I think, in the last century for law and order and enforcement. The Bible, over the last hundred years, has generally been accepted by people, whether they believed it or not, whether they had personal faith or not. They understood that the Bible was generally accepted. The judicial system has been based on a Judeo-Christian ethic. Um, tradition has been that people go to court and they put their hand on the Bible. And they swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, um, so help me God. Um, we did not shop on Sundays when I was growing up. Um, all of the stores were closed. And as you know, I was uh, born and raised in the city of... Thank you, you got it right. The city of Glasgow was founded in the 6th century by a monk. And if you visited Glasgow today, I know a couple of you have been there, and you've told me, and you bring back a cup or a you know, teaspoon with a little Glasgow crest on it, you'll find three words. They'll simply say, let Glasgow flourish. Let Glasgow flourish. This is a good model for city. Let the city flourish. But if you begin to unpack the history of the city of Glasgow, you would find that the full model, the proper model of the city of Glasgow, which I don't think anybody knows these days, is this. Let Glasgow flourish by the preaching of the word and the praising of his name. Now that's a model for city. That's different. 
And that was founded by this monks in kindergarten. Now that's Christendom. I'm not trying to tell you that all of society was Christian. Not at all. But you understand there was a moral imprint. There was a spiritual familiarity that rose out of the ethos and the traditions of the Christian faith. People followed them generally. And then starting in Europe about um, 1890, and moving into North America about 1930, a very powerful shift started to happen. It was a shift in truth. The Teutonic plates that are underneath this social order in society, they began to shift. Initially very slight and inconsequential, and then they began to really pick up speed. And let me give you this morning six broad headings. They're not complete, but six broad headings, kind of philosophy 101, about the kinds of changes that happened in North America, certainly, from about 1930 on. Okay? Six broad headings. Here they are. First of all, we moved in society generally from principles (coughs) to pragmatism. We've moved from being people whose lives are based on principles to people whose lives are shaped by pragmatism. Pragmatism simply means we'll do whatever works. What's expedient? Truth is whatever works. Whatever brings our desired results. You do what you got to do to survive. In pragmatism, truth is essentially relativized. The real conflict between Christianity and pragmatism is the conflict between what is right and what is expedient. Um, So when we give up principles, we move from being people whose moral compass has been let go. We simply are going to go whichever way the wind blows. The result is that the focus of much of today's ethical discussions is on prevention ethics rather than principled ethics. We see this in the whole um, ethical issues around abortion, around AIDS, and some other things. We could go on, that we'll have to do. Another title. We've moved in our society from absolutes to relativism. We've moved from the idea of absolutes, where things are held to be true no matter what, to relativism. And that leads us into the quicksand of situation ethics. That things are right and wrong depending on the situation. Depending often also on our feelings. If you remember the song from some years ago? It was really warm and mushy. And, um, remember Debbie Boone's song, You Light Up My Life? Remember that? You're leaving me hung out to dry. Like, you know, he's way too old. You do. Oh, thank you. Okay, we got some people remember. You know, you light up my life. Oh, it would be marvelous. You know, you could, um, for slow dancing and whatever. And remember the line in it? It can't be wrong if it feels so right. That's relativism. We've moved thirdly from community to individualism. The thread of community that will cities and groups largely have been broken apart as we move into greater individualism. Uh, people no longer know their neighbors, especially if you live in apartments, condominiums. You, you haven't a clue who lives next door to you. That was not true when you lived in rural settings and you lived in the country and you knew your neighbors. You could help your neighbors. The front porch has vanished where we could sit and watch kind of people come and go and we hide of them. You find that dark shadow in what I think is really the most difficult book in the Bible, the Old Testament. It's the book of Judges. Judges is a terrible book to read in terms of not, I don't mean terrible to read, but the stories that it gives us. 
in Judges. And there's one dark line in the book of Judges, like a drumbeat. comes about 12 times, I think. And it says, And every person did that which was right in his own sight. That's individualism. I'm going to do my thing, no matter what. I don't really care about you. We move from community to individualism. Next one, we move, we move largely from self-service to selfishness. Before we get involved in things, we want to know, what's in it for me? What do I get out of this? And that spirit has had an enormous impact on organizations and churches that depend heavily on volunteers. We've moved, I think this is the last one, uh, we've moved from a sacrifice to hedonism. And hedonism simply means pleasure. It was with the spirit of sacrifice and adventure that people would dare to go out and brave undertakings. And right now they're trying to find the Franklin ships um, that head into the Northwest Passage and then just vanish. We've never seen them anymore. <coughs> Why would they do that? There was a sense of service and exploration. But for many people now, especially in North America, the cause is now the gospel of hedonism. Simply, what will bring me pleasure? What will satisfy what I need? Okay, I'm sorry, there's one more. Um, our advertisers tell us, by the way, you owe it to yourself. We believe that. I just owe it to myself. I'm first. That's hedonism. Here's the last one. We've moved from monotheism, one God, to pluralism. Um, as a nation, Canada is functionally pluralistic. Uh, we have a bit of an oxymoron. We have a bit of a contradiction. Um, because international anthem, we sing, God, keep our land. Okay? And that, by the way, has been challenged. I'm sure some of you are aware of that. So we got that right. We got that line. But then the introduction of the Charter of Rights, which says, whereas Canada is founded upon principles that recognize the supremacy of God. It says that in the Charter. The problem is, you see, there's really no practical way to define what that means. The Charter then goes on to say, everyone has the following fundamental freedoms. A, the freedom of conscience and religion. And B, the freedom of thought, belief, opinion, and expression. So you see, the Charter talks about God, but then says everyone really has freedom of thought and conscience and religion to believe whatever we want. The result is that Canada, as we see it today, and particularly cities like Vancouver, are functionally polytheistic in religion, and are pluralistic in ethics. What this means is that for many years, world religions such as Buddhism, Buddhism or Hinduism, as well as truths like the New Age and so on, they have largely been for many, many years <coughs> excuse me, at the fringe of our society. Now you need to understand, and you simply turn on your television set, you look at the, what I call the face of Vancouver, and it has moved from the fringe of our society to the center of our society. We wonder if Christianity at times even has a seat at the table. The last week or so you see the, the riots happening around much of the world. Um, over this movie that's being created on YouTube um, about um, the Prophet Muhammad. Okay. The cumulative effect of all of these things is that we are entering and we now live in a land which is filled with the strange voices of other gods. We are walking in a land which, like Canaan, 
for the Israelites is seductive and dangerous. We're living in a land now as Christians, which is in which we are no longer, as Christians, the titled landowners and spiritual residents. We have become the aliens and the strangers. I think you young adults live in some really challenging times. In some ways, more challenging than the world in which I grew up in. The question is, how will we live? If you ask most people what they think of the Ten Commandments, what are some of the words that you might get? What would people say to you? Neighbors, somebody at work. If you mention the Ten Commandments, what might they say? That means it's your turn. Hmm? I can't hear you. I'm not hearing, sorry. Thou shalt not kill. But how would they describe generally what they think the Ten Commandments are like? Too strict. Rules. Old fashioned. I think people say they're out of date. They're irrelevant. All those kinds of things. And that kind of response, particularly when it comes from Christians, is to seriously misunderstand their purpose. The Ten Commandments are the practical expression of how God's people are supposed to live in a land which is filled with strange gods and ungodly practices, such as Canaan, as it was for them, or as it is Canada. Exodus 20, we read it. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So you see, God is speaking to his people, heading into a land filled with strange voices, bizarre ideas, and false gods. And his expectation, his starting point, is based on what he's done for them. I am the one who called you to myself and who rose you up on eagle's wings. The Ten Commandments are a transcript of the holiness of God to be copied and duplicated in daily life. Remember what Paul says um, in Romans chapter 12 about do not be what? What's the next word? Conform to the world, but be transformed. Don't be conformed. Um, J.D. Phillips, who wrote a translation way, way, way before the message, translated that, um, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. That's a great translation. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. And so, Romans 12, we understand that. You know what? The Ten Commandments are the same thing. It's here's God saying, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by my grace because you know me. God is saying, you've been called by my holy grace. This is how people who are called by holy grace live. This is how people whose lives are being touched by grace, here's what they look like. Grace demands of us, as I say, what duty would not dare demand. They're not old-fashioned laws and rules and strict whatever. They're the, they're the grace of God. And this is how the grace of God looks in our lives. What do we say this morning, briefly? We would say that who and what we worship controls us. There is no such thing as absolute freedom. If we think there is, we are deluding ourselves. We are always being controlled, consciously and unconsciously, as Jesus says, by where we put our treasure. That's why he says in the Sermon on the Mount, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth with moth and rust destroy thieves, break in and steal. But store up, he says, for yourselves treasures in heaven. Treasures in heaven. That's what you need to worship. <coughs> for he says, for where your treasure is, 
there your heart will be also. If we worship power, it will control us. If we worship success, it will control us. If we worship money, it will control us. God calls us to worship Him. And who and what we worship shapes us, fashions us, molds us. If we want to know what we really believe, carefully examine um, how you live. And, and if you want to get specific, examine where you spend your money and your time. The reason is that the gods we really believe in shape how we live and justify what we do. As Israel moved into this new land in a few years, this holy nation were going to meet false gods. These false gods, the gods in Canaan, were seen and known to be sexually promiscuous. And so that shaped the sexual practices of the nation. It justified sexual immorality. You see, if the gods were immoral, then why shouldn't we be immoral? We're shaped by what we do and how we worship. That's why God says to them, my people in this sexually promiscuous land don't commit adultery. It is the acceptance of pluralism that made it impossible for the government of Canada some years ago. Understand this. It's the acceptance of pluralism that made it impossible for them not to agree with same-sex marriages. Because once you've gone that far down the road philosophically, there is almost no logical alternative. I didn't write it down, but I, and some of you may be more up-to-date than this than I. There was a report this week came out of the latest census that the statistics of, of couples living together are married no, sorry, the statistic of same-sex marriages has gone up five times, I think in the last ten years. I'm not sure if I've got the numbers right, but it's the point of, that's the point. Of, that's the direction in which it's heading. The government of Canada had no alternative but to do that based on the Charter of Rights. You see, strange gods create strange ethics. False gods lead to false ethics. We become what we believe. So if we would worship this one and only God, this gracious God, this awesome God, this holy God, He seeks to write the transcript of His character upon our lives. We are to be shaped by His righteousness to be righteous. We are called by His holiness to be holy. We're challenged by His justice to be just. We're drawn by His mercy to be merciful. We're captured by His love to be loving. I believe that the darkening stage upon which we find ourselves today may actually become the greatest opportunity we have as a church, as Christians, to demonstrate and display in the best possible way how real and how radical Christianity is, what it truly will mean to be God's holy nation, a kingdom of priests, 
as we live in the death of Christendom. Who and what we worship identifies us. This single-minded devotion, this divine priority, is to identify us more than anything else as the people of God. We are to, it is to broadcast through our lives loud and clear that we are God's holy nation. Sometimes we invite people to follow, to find and to follow. It's actually not God or a Christian lifestyle. Listen please carefully to me. But rather, it is not enough to ask people to follow the rules of the Ten Commandments. We are called to ask people to find and follow God, who is the one and only. I've been a pastor for 44 years. I believe that one of the grave mistakes a past generation like mine has made towards us young people and young adults was that we have often asked you merely to follow a Christian lifestyle. We've asked you to look like Christians. We've asked you to dress like Christians. To do what Christians do. And to come and sit in church on Sundays without really asking and challenging you to follow Jesus and become a Christ follower. We have entertained you at times rather than equipped you. We have lowered the bar rather than raised the bar. And we were afraid to ask for more. So we accepted less. I think that's a huge mistake that the pastors of my generation have made to the churches and the young adults that we had in them. I say to you this morning, if that is the case, and you're in that situation, I apologize to you. And in doing so, I challenge you to raise the bar in your own life. To seek and to follow God as the one and only. To seek and to follow Christ and His transforming grace. And in your life, I plead with you, do not settle for anything less. So the Ten Commandments are not old-fashioned and fuddy-duddy strict rules. They call us to a radical counter-cultural lifestyle as the people of God. And the more that the moral stage of our culture darkens and becomes distorted, the more important it will be for God's people to stand in grace and to let grace shine and to live out His grace out of His people. We live in challenging, changing, fast-changing times. There are not times for Christians to be faint-hearted or fearful. We are again like Israel, living in a land filled with strange voices, and seductive sounds. And God is to say to us, as we would say to little children walking to school or teenagers heading off to university, don't talk to strangers. Don't talk to strangers. But, there is another voice that speaks to us people. It speaks to us, it says, an exodus out of the fire in the mountain. He rises his voice, 
above the clamor and the din of our culture. He says, I and I alone am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. Out of slavery, out of darkness, out of sin, out of death. I am the God who stooped down and met you in grace at the cross. Worship no other gods before me. Would you stand? And who is he? He is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who calls us. He and He alone is the one and only. Doesn't that extend you? He and He alone is the one and only. We're called to live in such a way that this land, our land, would be filled with His glory.